0: you can turn to psalm 95 psalm 95 if you don't have a bible uh, there should be one in front of you one of the black pew bibles and psalm 95 is on page 467 if you don't have a bible at home we'd love to give you one as a gift and so you can take that one that's in front of you uh, free of charge today we'd love to give that to you page 467 it'll also be in your bulletin and as is usually the case, we're between series so as we start the new, uh, the new year. We're, we're going to start a new series in a couple of weeks, so not next week, but the one uh, after that. We're going to begin a study of Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 1 and uh, going at least through chapter 11. We're going to commit to the first 11 chapters, uh, going passage by passage. And we wanted to be back in the Old Testament. We wanted to also uh, go to something that is... Um, foundational and uh, equipping just in a, in a basic discipleship way and everything begins with creation. And so we're going to start there. That's the most obvious place to begin. So we're going to start with Genesis one one. we We're going to talk about science and faith. We're going to talk about uh, the passage. We're going to talk about all different kinds of things. And so looking forward to that. In between, what I love to do is to return to the Psalms. Uh, and I'm going to do that for a couple of weeks. And today we're going to be in Psalm 95. This is like the Psalms Psalm. This is like the most classic psalm that you can think of. It is the most often used call to worship. It is very commonly known. It's actually got a Latin name. It's called the Venite in church history, which just means come or "O oh come, which are the first words of the psalm. And it's just a classic psalm about worshiping God. And I've been thinking about this psalm a lot as we transition from a very hard year from 2020 to 2021 and what this transition means for us and have been reflecting on Psalm 95 in particular. And in particular, noting that it actually helps us a lot to look at this psalm, this, this worship um, psalm, because it orients our hearts towards what God deserves from us. And I think that's an important uh, point for us. You'll notice the psalm itself does something that we do in our worship service Uh, You may be wondering, if this is your first time with us or first time in in a church like this, why we have prayers written out in the bulletin, why we pray words out loud together. It's kind of strange, if you've never experienced that before, to have words said uh, at the same time. Sometimes I say words and then people respond. Why do we do that? Well, Psalm 95 would be one of the reasons. It follows a pattern where the tenses in the psalm change, and so it's very clear that there are different voices in the original worship service that are being sung. Sometimes it's the congregation, let us do this. And then sometimes it's more of a leader, and sometimes it's God himself. The speaker takes on God's voice and says, you know, do not turn away from me, as he says in this psalm. Do not harden your hearts. And so, that's why we do that here. And that's one of the psalms is, is this one that, that, that does that most clearly. Well, let's read the psalm together. Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple weeks ago, our family went skiing for a couple days in in Flagstaff. Uh, and, um, you know, if you've been skiing before, snow skiing, you know about the ski lift. And the lift takes you up the mountain. And there's sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes of sitting and waiting before you actually ski down the mountain. And uh, if you're on one of the bigger slopes, uh, as, as I was that weekend there's normally a bigger ski lift, and you get to board with other people, just strangers, and so you're, you're trapped for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, there's no escape from, from hanging out with this person, and, um, you know, it's just one of those situations where you're like, it's like when you're in the elevator or when you're on a bus somewhere or public transit, and you don't know, the, the distance is, is big, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, but you don't know if you should speak or not. And uh, I typically do speak, you know, it's kind of the pastor thing. I try to engage someone a little bit. Um, but if, they, if they're not having any of it, then I'll, you know, let it, let it go. But I was boarding the lift with this couple of guys, and we were going up the mountain, and uh, they didn't seem interested in talking at all, so they just seemed interested in talking amongst themselves. So I let them be, but obviously I couldn't escape, so I could hear everything that they were saying. And... Um, The subject that they had pretty much the whole time they were going up the mountain was this, how annoying Phoenix people are. So pretty much the whole way up, I had to listen to how annoying it was that Phoenix people came up to ski down their mountain. These were Flagstaff teenagers. They lived there and they worked there. And they were just talking about how, you know, they wished Phoenix wasn't so close. You know, because then people wouldn't come up for day trips or short weekend trips like the very one that I was taking. And so they made fun of people like me the whole way up, grumbling about uh, how annoying they were. And, um, you know, I was just waiting for that moment where they turned to me and say, oh, where are you from? You know, and uh, having that awkward moment. But it never came. They were totally in their own world. And so they, I just listened to them grumble the whole way up. And we recognize all of us do this right all of us grumble about something we find something annoying something in the world something in our life something in the city that we live in and we find ways to be uh, upset about something but i'll tell you as we also probably know it's a very different experience when you are the object of someone else's grumbling and i'm sure that they would have said you know oh we don't mean you. You know, if they'd found out that I was from Phoenix, like, oh, you're an exception, but it's just all these other people or whatever. But there's, it's inescapable that I was the object of their grumbling. When Israel, God's people, was in the wilderness, they were released from Egypt and they were led out into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. The characteristic problem that God had with them, the sin that kept recurring, was their Grumbling. It's referenced actually in this passage in Psalm 95. It says, Do not harden your hearts as at the day of Meribah, as at the day of Massa in the wilderness. What he's talking about there is a particular episode in Israel's history that is representative of other times where the people of God grumbled about some situational thing and there is always some external reason that the people of God grumbled they didn't have food they didn't have water they were scared of the, to fight different people groups they didn't feel like they were safe they didn't have the comforts that they had in Egypt all these things are external reasons why the people of God grumbled but what God says in this passage and in other passages as He interprets, it's inescapable that the object of your grumbling is Me. Do not harden your hearts when your fathers put me, to, put me to the test and put Me to the proof. Though they had seen My work, God interpreted their grumbling about water in this case, what they were looking for at Meribah and Massah, as something that they were it was a it was a, a grumbling that had led to an unbelief in him because everything in this world is his as the psalm says he made the seas he formed his the dry land he is the great king above all gods and what happened to israel and what can happen to us is that our grumbling can lead to a deep disappointment with god And that disappointment can lead even to unbelief. And that's not only wrong, it's not only tragic in a way, it's also dangerous as the psalm ends with a very powerful statement about God not letting Israel enter the rest, enter the promised land because of their grumbling. I want to talk about that today. because Has there been any grumbling this year? This is the point where if I was down south somewhere, someone would say you're going from preaching to meddling. um, Because this is such a hot topic for us um, to talk about the way that we talk right now. And is it grumbling? And we have to be careful because the Scriptures, and I want to be so careful this morning, because the Scriptures tell us that it is okay to grieve. And there's so much to grieve about this last year. There's a place for lament. There's a place for righteous anger with what has happened over this last year. But I also wonder, and why I think God has put this psalm on my mind, is, is, there, is there a sense in which the grumbling can lead to an unbelief? And where is the line between grieving and grumbling? We're going to talk about that. But first, I'm just making this general point that... This was the characteristic sin of Israel, and it can be the characteristic of us as we talk about this last year. We call it 2020 A.D. We often say that. What does A.D. stand for? Anno Domini, right? The year of our Lord. And this last year was the year of our Lord. The one who made the seas, who formed the dry land who holds the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also, also holds whatever has happened this year. Doesn't He? And if we're not careful, if we're not watchful, as He says in this passage, if we don't watch our hearts, then we can become disappointed with God. We may think it's about a circumstance like Israel. Well, I just wish we had more of this or more of that, or I wish it was different. We may think it relates to the circumstance or the particular wilderness that we find ourselves in, but ultimately, it comes back to the God who made everything. So I want to talk about that today. How do we guard against this kind of disappointment with God? And here's the answer I want to give this morning from this passage. We guard against disappointment with God by continuing to offer Him what He deserves. We guard against disappointment with God by continuing to offer Him what He deserves, as opposed to a life where we are always seeking the things that we believe we deserve. If we seek for ourselves the perfect circumstances, if we seek to always avoid wilderness, wherever it may be, a hard thing, lacking water, whatever that may be, if we seek to live our lives hoping that those things don't happen to us or believing that they shouldn't happen to us, if we have that framework, we will set ourselves up for constant disappointment. But, if we live a life as an offering, giving God what He deserves, if we offer up to Him continually the things that He says in this passage Are due Him, then we not only do what we're made to do as His servants and as His followers, but we're also given a better life because we see it more clearly. We see exactly what we're supposed to do. So what do we what are we supposed to do? What do we what does He deserve that we give Him? Three things from this psalm I want us to see. The first thing is this God deserves our enthusiasm. God deserves our enthusiasm. The first five verses of this passage are an enthusiastic praise to God for who He is. And in fact, all of the building blocks of God's character are seen here in summary form. So if you were to ask me, how would you describe who God is? In three words, which has often been done uh, God is the Creator sustainer, redeemer. That's a framework that's been used in theology for a long time. It kind of covers all the Scripture, right? Genesis 1, the Creator. The sustainer, the story of the Old Testament is God as the King that Israel needs. Right? The King, the sustainer, the One who rules over all. The Creator, sustainer. Then we come to Christ who redeems His people. So you have to... Creator, sustainer, and redeemer—they're all here, right here in these first five verses. This is who God is. He is the creator. Verse four: In His hands are the depths of the earth; the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. He is the sustainer. Verse three: The Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. He continues to reign over this creation and then thirdly he is the redeemer in verse 1 we see this image oh come let us sing to the lord let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation why do you think that david as he wrote this psalm the new testament tells us that he wrote this psalm why do you think that he called god the rock of salvation Well, it goes right back to what we were just talking about and we'll describe a little more later. That reference here to Meribah and Massa, the place in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17 where David is drawing this from, he sees God as the rock of salvation. In that story, there is a rock that Moses is instructed to strike. When the people grumble against God, God tells them to go and strike the rock, and from the rock there comes living water. That means running water out, and it saves the people. It saves their life. And so He is the Redeemer. He saves His people with the water that they need. But if we look at that passage with the lenses of all of the Scripture, which we should do always, and we go to 1 Corinthians 10, we get even more information about this passage, and we're told that that rock that was struck was Christ Himself. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's a reference to this exact situation. The rock was a type of Christ in Exodus 17. A foreshadowing of the coming Christ, the rock And when they were drinking that water, they were saved. Their lives were saved. They were being redeemed. But in God's grand revelation, He was redeeming His people even more so because there was another rock that was coming. The rock was Christ, and the rock would be struck again. And in the striking of the rock, which is the crucifixion of Christ, then living water would be given to the world for the life of the world. And when you drink of that, We are saved. We are redeemed. God is the creator. He is the sustainer, the king above all gods, and He is the redeemer. Wherever His people are found in whatever circumstances they're in, He gives living water for their salvation. What are we supposed to do with that information? With that great salvation? Make noise what he says there should be an energy that accompanies this make a joyful noise sing be thankful shout words of enthusiasm I mean do you think about that that God deserves our enthusiasm for who he is and what he has done he deserves that now I know maybe uh, you've heard this before perhaps you're thinking it Um, as we say that some people would say, that makes me believe that God is pretty petty and insecure. Have you ever heard that before when somebody says, you know, this God who just wants all this praise, oh, He wants the whole earth to praise His name. What a megalomaniac. What Somebody, somebody who would just want this praise all the time. People who say that do not understand the nature of who God is. He's not a person as we are. He is not human as we are. He is God. He is in a different category. Why don't we do that with other things that are amazing? When we look at a beautiful moon, when we look at a beautiful sunset, nobody says, well, the sun's just showing off today. Nobody says, you know, how arrogant. Does He just want the whole earth to see this this beautiful display? We don't do that. Why? Because we recognize that something different is going on here. The sun or the moon just is beautiful. It just is great. That's what's happening. And so what would we say about the One who made the sun and the moon? He just is, and He is great. He doesn't participate. Sometimes we reflect our own emotions or experiences onto God and say, He must be petty. It actually reveals how petty and insecure we are. He just is and is great. How much of our grumbling, our disappointment in life stems from the fact that we are not enthralled with God? Has something ever beautiful just stopped you? Lifted you? Why does that happen? Because its greatness is putting you into perspective. That's what's happening. When you are stopped by something amazing, its greatness is putting you into perspective. And that is what this psalm does. Have you remembered and believed? This Creator formed the dry land with His hands, the seas, the depths, the mountains. They're all His. It's amazing. Have you been stopped and lifted and enthralled with this God or who He is? He deserves that. But even beyond that, we need that. We need to live a life of enthrallment towards something greater than ourselves, to something that puts us in the proper perspective. God deserves our enthusiasm. Secondly, God deserves our reverence. There's a tone change in the psalm. The first five verses are enthusiastic and noisy, and it kind of quiets, becomes intimate and respectful. Verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of of his hand. So the psalmist ceases from his shouting and just comes and kneels before the Lord. And our worship, sim- similarly, our worship is to be enthusiastic but not presumptuous. As we come into the presence of God, it's not only true that we should shout enthusiastically or sing to Him, it's also true that we respect Him and bow before Him. It's kind of the tension that we try to capture in our church here if you're wondering about that. We sometimes say joyful and reverent. That's what we're trying to be. Or casual and liturgical. Sometimes I use those descriptions. What does that mean? It means that this is a place of joy and and enjoyment of God and, and enthusiasm, but also a place where God is recognized as God Something different from us. This is a gift. It's a holy place. It's given to us not not because we deserve it, but because we've been let in to kneel before Him. God deserves our enthusiasm. God deserves our reverence. Finally, God deserves our hearts. One more turn in the psalm at the end of verse 7. After we've been hearing about this great God who's a great king above all the gods and enthusiasm and then also reverence and bowing before him, now it gets really personal. And it's as if God or the speaker speaks to us and he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And in verse 10, the heart is mentioned again. They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. The heart is also God's. He deserves our hearts. And you may notice that the psalm kind of takes a turn overall and is um, very joyful at the beginning and then very somber at the end. How do you go from, let us sing and shout joyfully to the Lord, to, in my wrath I didn't let them into the promised land? Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist preacher, has a beautiful image of this psalm. Uh, He says, this psalm was like a church bell. Um, You can hear a church bell in your mind. Uh, We're going to get that in the ABLE Project Phase 3, hopefully. You guys think I'm kidding. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's our capital (laughs) campaign where we're raising money for this building that God's given to us. Maybe a church bell one day. That'd be awesome. A call to worship to the neighborhood. This is a call. He says, this psalm, which is a call to worship, it sounds like a bell from a church. It sounds both merrily and then solemnly. First, a lively peal, then a funeral knell. Can you hear a church bell? Ding dong, right? calling us to worship. And they're both true for worship. It's both true that we come in praising Him and it's true that there is a warning here. Both are true. And the warning is about this people that are grumbling and disappointed with God and, and finding themselves upset with Him. It's that situation that we talked about. Meribah and Massah. Don't harden your hearts like that. What does that mean? It means... This place it actually was named Meribah and named Massah because those words mean contention Meribah means contention or disputing or arguing and Massah means testing to test God. And so Moses named those places because it was at that place where they in Exodus 17 grumbled against God and they wanted water but they didn't have any water and so they cried out to him. It's actually the place as we've already said where God said I will not let them enter the rest I will uh, let them wander in the wilderness this entire generation but it's also the place where Moses himself was disqualified for the promised land later in Numbers chapter 20 come back to Meribah and the people are again are wondering about the water and they're complaining about it and Moses uh, receives this instruction from God and he's told now speak to the rock he's not to strike the rock twice But Moses is so frustrated with the people that he goes and strikes the rock anyway and the water does come out. But Moses is told he will not enter the rest. He will not go into the promised land. The punishment of not entering the rest comes because of God's indictment against His people. What is His warning to them? What is the thing that He has against them? At the end of verse nine and verse 10, we see it and put it together here. He says, "Though they had seen my work," that's the end of verse nine, and then verse 10, there are people who go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways." And that's really the core of it, isn't it? They have seen my work, but not known my ways. They had seen God's work. What work? These are the people in Exodus 17, who had been part of the Exodus. They had seen the plagues afflict Egypt. They had seen God lead them out of those plagues. They had walked through the walls of the Red Sea as it had been parted. They had come to the other side and been delivered by, from the Egyptians. They had been out of Egypt, th- moved out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. They had seen the work of God. They had been provided for with manna and birds in the wilderness. They have seen My works, but have not known My ways. The author of Hebrews picks up this psalm and talks about it: our eternal rest. In chapters 3 and 4, Psalm 95 is quoted throughout. And the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, says, today... If you hear His voice, we turn to Christ and enter into His eternal rest when we receive Christ because He is the greater Moses. They had seen His works, and maybe we have seen His works, but have not known his ways and the proof of that comes in the moment of testing in the moment of contention the Meribah moment the Massa moment the place in the wilderness where you realize that you have some kind of uncertainty they found their place in the wilderness that was hard for them and what will we do with our moment in the wilderness Maybe you experienced a wilderness this last year. 2020 was a hard year. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that. Believing that. Experiencing that. Of course not. It was a wilderness for many people. For some of us, perhaps, the first real wilderness of our lives. Because we had so much uncertainty. What's it like when I can't have what I want all the time? What's it like when I'm cooped up in my house? What's it like when I lose my job? What's it like when there is racial and political unrest in this country and I don't know what to do about it personally. I don't know how to engage. We have all of these things. Isn't it right that we would find ourselves grieved and saddened by those things? It absolutely is. Where is the line between grief and grumbling? Where has it become wrong to be upset about something? Doesn't the Bible tell us to grieve? Doesn't it tell us to be sad? Doesn't it tell us to be angry and not sin? To even ask angry questions. And the answer to that is yes, it does. There's hardships to be grieved. There are wrong things to be lamented. And there are things that we should be righteously angry about. All of those are biblical. So how do I know if my grieving has become grumbling? It's actually simpler than you may think. The Bible tells us here in this passage that we need to look at our hearts. Today, if you hear His voice, don't be sad anymore. It's not what it says. Today, if you hear His voice, believe the best about everything and put a smile on your face. No. Do not harden your hearts. Look at your heart. Is it growing hard against God? Are you secretly or not so secretly disappointed with Him and what He has done or allowed? Or is there a tenderness? Even in the hardest times, is there a softness towards Him? And you think about Job. You've read that book in the Scriptures and all of the things that have happened to this man who lost everything who was righteous in God's sight. He was a righteous guy. He was a good man. And he was sent into the wilderness. He lost all of his wealth. and He lost his kids. And he lost his house. And you can imagine the tears and the weeping uh, that he experienced. And you can read in the book the questions he asks of God. Wondering about why God is permitting this to happen to him. But what the Scripture says also is that in all of those things, in all of that crying, in all of those questions, Job sinned not. Why? Because he blessed the name of the Lord. You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though you slay me, yet I will praise him. Job's heart was never lost, even though his circumstances were hard. Harder than anything that any of us probably in this room have experienced this year. And so we are told to be sad. We're told to be angry without sin. And we should do those things. But in the midst of those things, we guard ourselves against losing our hearts towards God. Losing our enthusiasm towards Him. Losing our reverence for Him. These are all things that He deserves, but more than that, more than deserving it, it's something that we are actually built to give Him and actually find our own life in doing by living for Him and offering ourselves and our worship to Him and our reverence and our deference to Him and our very hearts and not letting our hearts being pulled away in all these different directions. We learn what it is to be a human being in the way that we're called to be. He deserves our enthusiasm. He deserves our reverence. He deserves our hearts, no matter what the wilderness is that we find ourselves in. And so if you find yourself there this morning without those things, without a heart for Him, without very much enthusiasm for your life of faith, then just hear the psalm again. Do not harden your hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring a heart of flesh to your heart of stone. Ask Him to enthrall you with God again. Ask Him to give you a deeper respect for God and His purposes. Ask Him to change your heart so that your heart is offered to Him. It's easy to become disappointed with God. We think that we're disappointed with other things and circumstantial things. But it actually all goes back to him because he made the heavens and the earth. But if we give him what he deserves and we make our life about what he deserves, he actually gives us a better life in him. Let's pray.